I first became interested in the Buddha's teachings when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. <clears throat> this goes back quite a few years. Uh, it was in the mid-60s. <clears throat> and I spent two years there just as a kind of introduction. I would be going to uh, discussion groups at some of the temples. When I came back to the States after my two years in Thailand, I tried to practice by myself and realized very quickly that I needed a teacher. I hadn't gotten much meditation instruction and trying to figure it all out by myself led to a lot of confusion. So I went back to Asia, stopping in India on the way, going to various places, teachers that I had heard of, a couple of ashrams in northern India, finally ended up in Bodh Gaya, which, as you know, is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And it's there that I met my first teacher, Anagarika Munindraji. And he had just returned from nine years in Burma, practicing and studying. And at one point, very early on, uh, we were sitting on the roof of this place. It was called the Burmese Vihara. It was a place made for Burmese pilgrims, but that at that time Burma was closed, and so there weren't any pilgrims, and only uh, Westerners, the few Westerners who were there at the time, were staying. We were sitting on this roof of the Vihara, a flat roof, a few of us with Manindraji, and he went around asking each one of us why we wanted to practice, why we had come to India. Because at that time there were very few Westerners who were there to study meditation. And people gave various reasons, but for me the reason was very clear. And it really was the possibility of awakening. But that's what drew me to go back to India to study the teachings. And then Manindraji went on to explain the basic Vipassana practice. And as soon as he started talking about it and just giving the outline of the meditation, I felt immediately at home. It was such a direct, simple, common sense approach to understanding. And something he said which really captured my interest and fueled my commitment. He said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. And it seemed so obvious. You know, how else can we understand our minds except by observing them? You know, there were no rituals, there was nothing to join. It was just sit down and look at what's happening. So it was this very simple, direct, immediate approach to understanding the nature of our minds, what are the patterns that cause suffering, what are the patterns that lead to peace, that lead to happiness. This is what inspired me to really devote many years uh, to this practice. The simple but not always easy practice of Vipassana, 
And Vipassana is a Pali word which literally means seeing clearly. And so when people ask you what kind of meditation you're practicing, you can say, I'm practicing seeing clearly meditation. Because that's really what it's about. And that has many important implications, which we'll get into. So all of the practices of Vipassana are rooted (coughs) in one discourse of the Buddha. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Satipatthana Discourse. (coughs) And Satipatthana can be translated, that's a Pali word, It's often translated as the four foundations of mindfulness. Or it can be translated as the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And the Buddha begins this discourse, this very fundamental teaching of meditation practice, with a very bold and unambiguous statement. I'd like to read these first lines of the sutta. Bhikkhus, and again, as I think Sally mentioned, bhikkhus refers to anyone walking on the path. So he's really talking to us here. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, (coughs) for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four satipatthanas. This is a very simple, direct statement of what this practice is about. So given the magnitude and the import of this declaration, I thought it'd be useful to explore some aspects of this teaching from the Satipatthana Discourse in some detail. What's amazing as we either hear or read this teaching, we find that all of the quite vast amount of teachings of the Buddha really are contained within it. And it's only a few pages long. One of the amazing aspects of the Buddha's genius is that when you open (coughs) any doorway into the Dharma, you approach it from any side and you open the doorway, and as you enter, it's all of the aspects of the Dharma are revealed. And that's very obvious, you know, as we read and study this particular discourse. So the Buddha began the sutta by declaring, this is the direct path to awakening. And he then goes on to point out what the four fields, or they're called the four pastures, for our mindfulness. Where do we apply our mindfulness? What are the areas that we should be looking at and exploring? So the Buddha goes on, and it's very explicit. (coughs) He says, what are the four? Here, bhikkhus, 
in regard to the body. Abide contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, the second Satipatthana, abide contemplating feelings, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the body, in regard to feelings, in regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard, in regard to dhammas, which here means the different categories of experience, like the hindrances, like the factors of enlightenment, like the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths. So in regard to all these categories of experience, abide contemplating dhammas, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So what do our minds do when we hear this? I've found that as part of our cultural attention deficit disorder, (laughs) that often in reading or hearing the suttas, whenever I come across a lot of repetitions, you know, where the same phrases, the same words are repeated again and again, my mind tends to skip over them. I think, oh, I've heard that already. And I heard it with the first foundation, then the second, the third, and the fourth, repeating the same thing. But there is another possibility. When the Buddha repeats some phrase, the same phrase, with each of these four fields of mindfulness, the bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent, perhaps he is trying to tell us something, you know, that these qualities are important and that we need to develop them in our practice. So I'll go with the second assumption, that there's a reason the Buddha repeated them again and again, because they are important. We need to understand them. We need to integrate them into our practice. So what does ardent mean? So think of the feeling of ardor the first time you fell in love, you know, or you thought you did. You know, just that feeling of ardor, there's that powerful, sustained energy, you know, and there's this tremendous warmth of feeling. There's a passionate and strong enthusiasm and interest. We can't stop thinking of the person. You know, it's just the mind is is consumed, in a way, by the ardor, by the passion. So can we cultivate those very same qualities in our love of the Dharma, in our love of the truth? Can we be ardent in this practice and generate that feeling of passion, of enthusiasm, 
of warmth. The question is, through all the many ups and downs of practice, you know, times when it's easy and times when it's difficult and challenging, how can we sustain and nourish this feeling of ardor? How do we, how do we have this feeling grow in us, given that the Buddha said it was such an important component of the spiritual path? There are a few reflections which help to generate this spirit, this ardent energy within us. The first is to reflect on the purpose and benefits of our practice. Now the Dharma and the teachings, it's a jewel of priceless value. When this lawful understanding, the the lawful unfolding of conditions, when we understand that, which is really what the Dharma is about, that conditions in ourselves, in other people, in the world, in life, things are happening lawfully. Conditions are arising because of certain causes. When we understand this, then we see that the Dharma, the understanding of the lawfulness, is the source of every happiness in our lives. <clears throat> because we understand what are the conditions that bring about worldly pleasures. And the Buddha talked about this as well. <clears throat> he didn't only talk about renunciation of sense desire, he talked about the delights of worldly pleasures and then went on to discuss the drawbacks of them. But there is a way, there's a way of understanding, okay, what brings worldly happiness, worldly pleasure? And there's a way of understanding what brings the highest realization of peace. This is from the writings of monk in the Thai forest tradition in Thailand, Ajahn Man, um, who was one of the very great masters, who's kind of the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition and a reputed arhant and quite a remarkable being. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nirvana. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So this is not something outside of us that we have to look for. I presume we all have minds. 
the mind is there already. It is this priceless jewel, this priceless possession. And understanding it is the understanding of the Dharma. And so reflecting on this, it, it generates this tremendous interest and fascination. How is this mind working? We can also reflect on the rarity in the world of connecting with and having the opportunity to practice teachings that lead to liberation. Not many people in the world have the conditions come together where they even hear the teachings or have the opportunity to practice them. Kensi Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, he said, ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants on this planet have any idea of how rare it is to be born a human being. And just that, how rare it is to be born a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do practice? How many of those who start continue? So it's quite amazing when you reflect upon what we're all doing here, reflecting on our commitment to practice, we can begin to appreciate the strength of the paramis, that inner urge, that powerful inner urge that brought us all here. This is not many people's idea of a vacation. You know, if you go up to people, oh yeah, how would you like to spend six weeks or three months in silence and eat two, two and a half meals a day and not speak? (laughs) So there's something going on that makes us all value this as much as we do. You know, there's some powerful force in the mind. It's rare. This is not a usual undertaking. And so when we reflect on this, it really can bring about a lot of joy, a lot of self-respect, a lot of respect for our fellow yogis. And we just realize the depth and the strength of this urge, this desire, this willingness to practice. And so even in times of difficulties, in times when you feel challenged, reflecting on this strength that is there, it's what brought you here, it brings about it, it arouses this feeling of order, of passion, of connection. We strengthen the quality of order by reflecting on and seeing clearly the transiency, the impermanence of all phenomena. You know, when we look at all of the things that we identify with, when we look at all of the things that we think are important and become attached to, could be people in our lives, maybe it's possessions, maybe it's certain feelings or emotions, 
or maybe it's different states or conditions, experiences in the body. When we look at that, but then we put it in the context of the understanding of impermanence, we see that nothing we have, no one in our lives, no state of mind is exempt from this great truth of change. No force in the world can prevent the process of growth, decay, and death. Because that is the Dharma, that is the lawful nature of things. When we don't understand deeply, when we don't see clearly the transiency, the changing nature of all conditioned things, that whatever arises internally, externally, in the body, in the mind, that whatever arises has the nature to pass away. Then we devote ourselves and our lives and our energies and even our meditation practice just to wanting to collect things, to wanting, to desiring other people or possessions or meditative experiences. And we get caught up in the various appearances of samsara, in the movie-like dramas of our minds. I mean, how many have arisen in just these few days? You know, we're sitting here with the intention to pay attention, the intention to be aware. And yet we see how seductive are all these stories. And in that seduction, we are solidifying even further the sense of self, the sense of I. There's a wonderful dialogue between one of uh, the very great Tibetan Dzogchen masters, I think of the 18th century, it's some time ago. His name was Shabkar. A conversation between Shabkar and a flower. It's a little long, but it's really a lovely conversation. So this is Shabkar. Another day I went for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me, one particular flower waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. Listen to me, mountain dweller. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact, you even lack awareness of impermanence and death, let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, outer phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, now will give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom, surrounded by an eager cloud of bees. 
I dance gaily, swaying with the wind. When a, when a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. And when the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull the vivid colors till turning brown, I wither. Later still, winds, violent and merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unhealthy aging will steal away your healthy vigor. Your hair will whiten and your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied, among all the activities of samsara, there is not one that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows, even now in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging, meditate in solitude, seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. I love that. Everything is teaching us. You know, if we really open our eyes, Everything is teaching us. So the awareness of change reminds us of the purpose of our practice. What are we doing? What choices are we making? One time years ago, I was doing you know, a long retreat, and I just got into a, a little pattern of getting lost over and over again in recurring fantasies. And it was kind of nice. <laughs> I was sitting, and when you're lost in the fantasies, you kind of forget the discomfort in the body, and the time goes quickly. You know, oh, yeah, that was fun. But at a certain point, I mean, it just kept going on and on and on. At a certain point, I remember, I said, Joseph, do you want to think, or do you want to get enlightened? You know, it was just a way of reminding, what am I doing here? What, what's the purpose in my being here? Do I just want to keep indulging in, in these thoughts and these fantasies? Or do I really want to see clearly? You know, do I want to wake up? 
So sometimes we need to remind ourselves, you know, and the awareness of impermanence can be a prompt for that reminder. You know, what is our purpose in being here? What, what really creates that sense of ardency? So the second quality the Buddha emphasized, beside ardor, abide contemplating the four satipatthanas with ardor, second quality he emphasized in Pali is called sampajano, which means clearly knowing or fully aware or seeing something precisely or thoroughly from all sides. So this clearly knowing means it's the ability to clearly comprehend in a full way, in a comprehensive way, what is taking place. So again, from the Satipatthana Sutta. Again, bhikkhus, when going forward and returning, act clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, act clearly knowing. When bending or straightening the limbs, act clearly knowing. When wearing robes and carrying bowls, act clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, act clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, act clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent, act clearly knowing. Did you get it? (laughs) Act clearly knowing. I think it might be helpful being on retreat. We might also explicitly add or include some activities that either impact our fellow yogis or are places where we often get distracted. So we might add to the Buddha's words here, when opening and closing doors, act clearly knowing. When entering or leaving the hall, when doing the yoga job, act clearly knowing. When alone in one's room, act clearly knowing. Or going from one place to another, When clear comprehension is present, when this aspect of the teaching, when we're cultivating it, it enables us to assess the suitability of an action. What is the motivation? Where is this action leading? Is it beneficial or not? Is it the right time? So as an example, in one context, doing walking meditation and you're walking very slowly and feeling just you know the most subtle changing nature of the sensations and it can be so precise and exact and soft and easeful but when you're on the lunch line and there are 50 people behind you moving 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 that's not clear comprehension We've lost the context, you know, of the experience. 
So this is what clear comprehension means. It enlarges the scope. So it's not only that we're narrowly focused, we take in the bigger picture. You know, it begins to include the context of our actions so we can see what is appropriate at this time, what is suitable. So, in the sutta, a bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful. So mindful is the third of these qualities that the Buddha mentions, which are necessary for awakening. And in fact, mindfulness is really at the heart of all Buddhist practice. Mindfulness is the translation of the Pali word sati. And it holds a central place. This quality of sati, or mindfulness, holds a central place in every Buddhist tradition. It's not limited to Theravada or Vipassana practice. Mindfulness is the key quality in every path of awakening. It's what makes any spiritual path possible. For some time, I was practicing um, a little bit in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition and with a very great teacher. His name was Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. And he wrote this kind of an ode to mindfulness. So this is from another whole tradition. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. Without mindfulness, we are just caught up you know, in the stories of our mind. And so it's the key element, it's the, it's the root of every practice of awakening. But this function, this sati, it's a very nuanced and powerful mental factor. The word mindfulness in English really doesn't do it justice. Because mindfulness is kind of a prosaic word. And yet the function of this factor in the mind is tremendously powerful. So most literally, sati means remembering. That's the most literal meaning of the word. 
And this remembering can refer to different things. It can be remembering what is wholesome and unwholesome. So that's a powerful function of sati. So that we remember and make wise choices. It can refer to the recollections, the meditative recollections of the Buddha or the Dharma, the Sangha, you know, or the remembering of one's past skillful actions, both of which become means for arousing energy and rapture within us, different ways of uplifting the mind. Of course, sometimes in the powerful Western habit of self-judgment, the self-judgment can co-opt these very skillful reflections. One time I was in Burma, I was there for a while, and I was going through a hard patch. I was just kind of slogging away day after day, and nothing much seemed to be happening. And it was hot, and it was just difficult. So Saida Upandita, hoping to lift my spirits, said, Joseph, uh, you should reflect on your sila. Thinking, yeah, I'd reflect on my past you know, hold some actions and I'd feel good. Well, he said, reflect on your sila. And my first thought was, what did I do wrong? (laughs) My immediate was kind of a self-judgment. So we need to use these reflections uh, skillfully. But most fundamental to our practice, sati or remembering, is really the remembering of the present moment. So this is how we are are applying mindfulness in our practice. Mindfulness means present moment awareness, presence of mind, wakefulness. It's the opposite of being absent-minded or forgetful. So how to recognize, how how to get very specific in our recognition of what this experience of mindfulness is. Because we hear the words and, you know, we may try to fit them somehow to our experience, but how can we know very specifically, yes, this is what mindfulness means? It's actually very simple. I'm sure you're familiar with the experience whether sitting or walking, going through the day, of being lost in a thought. Is there anybody here who hasn't been lost in a thought? Doubtful. (laughs) So we all have that experience. Okay, so we're lost in a thought, lost, 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 and then at a certain moment, we awaken from being lost. We remember that we've been thinking, right? So you're familiar with that moment of waking up from being lost. That moment is very important. Don't rush back to some other object of meditation. Don't rush back to the breath or the body. In that transition from being lost to being awake, right in that moment, the nature of mindfulness, of awareness, of wakefulness, is totally illuminated. 
because the difference in the experience is so clear. Right? We've just gone from being lost, and then in a moment we're awake. Take a moment to recognize that, oh yes, this is what awareness means. This is what mindfulness means. And this happens many, many times a day. So instead of the usual pattern of being lost, lost, and then we're awake, and then we have a self-judgment about having been lost, instead of going down that track, lost, 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 awake, take delight in the moment of wakefulness. Take delight in the recognition of wakefulness. And so then many times a day, you will be having moments of delight instead of moments of self-judgment. Because for as many times as you get lost, that many times do you awaken. So it's a powerful moment. Generally, people skip over it. They don't don't really take, take the moment to see, to recognize, oh yes, this is the experience of awareness. So really use it. it. It suffuses the day with these moments of wakefulness and recognition and appreciation of them. In yesterday's instruction on the mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha emphasized yet another aspect of mindfulness. You know, we talked about the different kinds of remembering and the remembering in the present moment. Sometimes we say that mindfulness means living in the present. You know, living in the moment. So that would be a common, a common understanding of mindfulness. But that is not really enough. It's much more than living in the moment. There's a state of mind that I call black lab consciousness. Do you have a picture in your mind of black labs, the dogs? And it, could be, it could actually be any dog or animal, but I like black labs because they're just so funny. <laughs> you know, they're, they're totally delightful creatures, and they're just kind of going along, totally led by their nose, you know, here and there. And, but you could have that same understanding watching the squirrels or you know, any animal, the birds. They are living in the moment. They are in the present. They are knowing the present moment experience. But they're not being mindful. I don't know of a single mindful black lab. (laughs) You know. So it's more than simply living in the present. So we need to understand what that more is. That's why in the Buddha's instruction on the breath, he gives an indication You know, when breathing in long, or breathing out long, or short, the instruction was, I understand I'm breathing in long, I'm breathing out long. I understand I'm breathing in short, breathing out short. So it's that word, understanding, which suggests that mindfulness has a very close association with wisdom. So it's not just going through life like a black lab, living in the moment. 
We have to be in the moment with understanding. That's the great gift of mindfulness. That's the power of mindfulness. So it's not simply being in the moment, it's understanding the momentary experience. It's understanding what is happening. There's a Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, and I was reading just a collection of his poems, and there was one poem which had the title, it totally captured my interest. The title of the poem was, Live You Say in the Present. So I thought, oh, that's a good Buddhist poem. So these are the first four lines of the poem. Live you say in the present, live only in the present, but I don't want the present, I want reality. You know, so that's a whole other dimension, and this is the dimension of, yes, live in the present, but it must be associated with understanding, it must be associated with wisdom. That's the nature of mindfulness. So you can see, I hope, that this is a very rich and powerful function of the mind, and this is what we're cultivating. And it's this difference which points to an important distinction in how we practice. And it's the difference between being relaxed and being casual. You know, we've talked a lot about the importance of relaxation. That really settling back, relaxing, opening up. That this is a foundation of the practice. But people, often for quite a while, can confuse relaxation or get it mixed up with a casual attitude toward the practice. And it's what I call (coughs) more or less mindful. (coughs) I'm kind of there. You know, it's like we're skimming the surface. We're connected somewhat. But it's, it's a somewhat casual attitude. It's the difference between a rock which drops to the bottom of a pond and a cork which bobs along on the surface. The casual attitude is like the cork. Yeah, I'm here. But mindfulness is like the rock that drops to the depth. So as you're moving about or sitting, it can be very relaxed. You want to cultivate that relaxation, the letting go of the grip, the striving, the expectation. But in that relaxation, settle deeply into your experience. And you will see very clearly the difference. You know, when when you're walking, and you can especially notice it walking from place to place, so often the mind is just ahead of itself. We're walking and we're kind of aware that we're walking, but we are not feeling each step as a unique experience. We're walking with a slight inner lean to where we're going. So keep in mind this meaning of mindfulness. 
It's the sinking into the depth. And it really just comes about from remembering. It's not hard to do. It's just remembering to do it. And so that's how all these aspects of sati, the meaning of sati, come together. This mental factor of mindfulness has a tremendous power in our lives. And there is a long list of its benefits. One of the benefits of being mindful is that it acts as a guardian of the sense doors. So it restrains the mind from, this is the Pali word, papancha, And papancha means all of those proliferating thoughts in the mind. You know how one thought leads to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and before we know it, we're engrossed in some story. So guarding of the sense doors does not mean closing the sense doors down. It's not closing the senses. Rather, mindfulness serves the function of being aware of what's arising at each of the sense doors. We're actually there for the experience. So I'll just give you an example of the power of mindfulness in terms of this aspect of guarding the sense doors. For many years, when I was on retreat, in many different places, I would notice that whenever I would go into the dining room, you know, at mealtime, there's a lot of activity and a lot of people, and you know, there's a lot going on. And I would notice the tendency of my mind. It's as if it would be going out through the eye door, landing on everything I was seeing, you know, whether it was other people or the food or whatever. So it's like my attention was going out through the eye door, landing on these different objects, and then having all kinds of comments and judgments and whatever. There was a certain period in my practice where I noticed my mind had a comment about almost everybody. You know, about what they were wearing, how they were walking, how much food they were taking. Ridiculous. But that's what it was doing. So after a while, after a while of noticing that this was happening, I was trying to understand, well, why is that happening? It's so, it's so fruitless. And I realized it was happening because I was not being mindful of seeing. All of that papancha was happening because the mind was going out to what was seen, landing out there, creating all of these kind of thoughts. And all I had to do was settle back, let mindfulness exercise its function in the sense of guarding the sense door, and notice, note, that I was seeing. So then I would go into the dining room, and I made this a practice the whole time, from the time I went in till I sat down at the table with my food, I would simply note seeing. That's all I was mindful of. Seeing, seeing, seeing. It was amazing. First of all, my eyes were not popping out of my head. So it's like the eyes got very soft and relaxed. And I was just receiving the sights rather than going out to them. So I was just seeing the color and form, and I would recognize you know, what it was. 
it cut the comments, the judging, the desires, I would say by 99%. Because I was being mindful of that particular sense door. You can do the same thing with hearing, tasting. This is a function of mindfulness. It brings us back to the very basis of our experience. And it guards us from this tremendous tendency towards proliferation. Beside being a guardian of the sense doors, mindfulness also has the function, it's said, of standing near the mind, of serving and guarding the mind. You know, I've got, I just kind of like the image. If, you know, if you think of the mind as, I don't know, the royal presence within us. You know, and mindfulness serves and guards and protects this precious mind of ours. Mindfulness brings us face to face with whatever is arising, with whatever is appearing, rather than just you know, these sidelong glances about what's happening. Mindfulness is right there. So we see so clearly the thoughts and the emotions and the intentions tensions and motivations, whatever is arising in our mind. In street talk, we might say that mindfulness is watching our backs. It's protecting us. It's watching our back. But then in reflecting on this, I thought more accurately maybe we should say that it's watching our front so that we're not so seduced by all the arising appearances and phenomena. With mindfulness, we become more aware of what's arising in our hearts and minds, and we're able to make wiser choices. Otherwise, without mindfulness, without sati, without this function in the mind, what happens? We're just living out, acting out, our own particular habit patterns, our own particular pattern of conditioning. That's what our lives are. And so mindfulness is this tremendously liberating force because it enables us to see, oh, this is arising. Is this of benefit? Is it of not? Do I cultivate it? Do I abandon it? Ajahn Sumedho, you know, the, the wonderful American monk in the Thai tradition, he, he had a great expression, and it really runs counter to so much of kind of new age spirituality, where so much of the message is, well, follow your heart. Lajan Sumedha had a different take. He said, it's not a question of following your heart, it's a question of training your heart. And anybody who has watched their hearts for any period of time will know that our hearts are not, I think I speak for most of us, they are not unalloyed goodness. (laughs) We have a lot going on in our hearts. 
a lot of beautiful qualities and a lot of things that are not so beautiful. So it's not simply a question of following our hearts. It's a question of understanding, of seeing, seeing clearly, and then training our hearts in goodness. So all of this is the power of mindfulness. This is the function of mindfulness. And it's why the Buddha gave so much emphasis to this as the quality to cultivate in our practice. Uh, Nyanaponika Tara, who was uh, one of the very early Western monks in Sri Lanka, he was from Germany, he wrote a classic book, book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And it's a book about mindfulness, because this is the heart of all our practice. So I'd like to close with some comments written in letters from second graders who were part of a program. It's called the Mindful Schools Program. It was in Petaluma, California. And it was a friend of ours who went into the schools and started teaching mindfulness in the schools, and in this case, to second graders. And then some months later, he went back for a follow-up, and he got some letters you know, from, from these young kids. So these, these are a few excerpts. Mindfulness helps me get getting better grades. I enjoyed mindfulness. Mindfulness helps me calm down when I get upset. It also helps me with sports and helps me to go to sleep at night. I just remember, these are second graders. Thank you for doing mindfulness. I love it. Mindfulness helped me to be more happy at school. Thank you for teaching mindfulness. Mindfulness changed my life. Mindfulness makes me calm and feel nice. It is so very fun. Mindfulness is the best thing I have done in my life, my long life. (laughs) Mindfulness really gets me calm. I love mindfulness. (laughs) So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.